a little bit of context for 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. And we know that the Apostle Paul is the writer, uh, writer of this letter. He's writing to who he calls his son in the faith, somebody that he loves very much. His name is Timothy. Timothy is the pastor at the church in Ephesus, which is the largest church in the known world at that time. And Paul loves Timothy very much. He calls him his beloved son, his true son. So they obviously have a very close relationship. The Apostle Paul is facing certain death. We know that because in chapter 4, he actually says it. He says, my life is about to be poured out as a drink offering. And that's a way of him saying, I know I am about to die. And so we can assume that these words are important, not just for Timothy, but for us today. It is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote 13, uh, more than half of the New Testament. And so the, the things that he wants to say, he's saying them to the right person. He's saying to, uh, these things to him at the right time. And I think as these translate to us, uh, there's so much for us to take away. Many of his associates, if not all of them, have fallen away from the faith or deserted him. He even names a few people. He gives out names in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. In chapter 1, he says things like this. He says to Timothy, I'm praying for you. He says, remember your heritage, your mom who walked with Jesus, and also your grandmother. You're, you're standing on shoulders of people who love God. He tells him to use the gifts that have been given to him. And he even says, by the laying on of my hands, he says, stir up the gift. Don't neglect the gifts of God that you have inside of you. Make sure to pay attention and employ them. He says, don't be fearful. You have not received a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and sound mind. Why would Timothy be afraid? Well, for one reason, Paul's in chains. And that probably is a picture to him that he too might be in chains at, in some, at some point in the future. And so Paul says, don't be afraid. He also says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Why would Timothy be ashamed of Paul? He says, don't be ashamed of my chains. I know where I am and I know why I'm here. In fact, Paul was the one who could turn a prison sentence into a ministry opportunity. So he's like, you should be excited for me. I know what I'm doing. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. And he goes as far as saying, you're called by God. Do not forget that you have a calling, a holy calling from God. And in chapter 2, he starts to encourage and equip him. Before we read verse 20, he says things like, be strong in God's grace. And make sure that your strength doesn't come from yourself, but it comes from the Lord. And also make disciples who will make other disciples. Take what's been passed on to you and pass it on to others. Endure suffering. I think he even tells them to expect it. You should be aware that this is coming. And Timothy, I want you to warn people that there's false teachers that have gone out and they're infiltrating the church. Be mindful of the false teaching that is present and make sure that you steer people clear of what is being said. Be clear and focused on the gospel. And, and then the famous verse, verse 15 all the way up to verse 20, he says, I want you to be diligent. That means to work hard, study, show yourself approved, a workman unto God that is unashamed, that can rightly or accurately handle the word of truth. He said, Timothy, I want you to know the Bible. I want you to study the Bible. And can't you understand him saying that because of all the false teaching and false teachers? The way you combat false teaching and false teachers is not just take a stand, but it's you get to know your Bible more so that what you say is based on what is true. One of the reasons why there's so much false teaching is because people forget what is said and what is true. 
So he says, study, accurately handle the word of truth. And and then in verse 20 to 26, he starts by using a metaphor. He talks about a house and he's telling Timothy how to live a holy life and why a holy life is necessary if you're going to be useful to the master for every good work. And I just assume today that we all want to be useful to God in his hands to do what he wants us to do. This is not about us anymore. It is about King Jesus. And so Paul says, if you want to be useful, this is what you need to know. Verse 20, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified or made holy for every Uh, good work, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And then he says how to do this. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels or arguments. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. That is a word for us today. That word means argumentative. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. I believe what Paul is doing in these passages is he is exhorting and even equipping Timothy to live a holy life, to be sustained in being set apart unto God. And before we sort of dig into the passages and pull out some points that are very clear, I I would like to share some categorical thoughts about the issue of holiness because that's what we're talking about today, the call to be holy. So what does it mean to be holy? How do we understand holiness from the Bible? Well, first, what we know is the word holy appears in Exodus chapter 15, and it is ascribed to God. And when we see it ascribed to God, it's saying, God, you are holy, which means you are set apart. You are special. You are sacred. You are consecrated. There is none like you. God is holy. We see this about God throughout the Old Testament, all the way through the New. And we even sang it today, didn't we? We sang the song with all the saints and the angels. We're singing that he is worthy of it all. But when you read the book of Revelation, you find that the angels and the saints, when they sing to God, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is like no other. There is none like God. This is what they're saying. It says that they toss their crowns before the throne of God and they lift their hands and they begin to cry out that God is holy. Now we could just park there and talk about the holiness of God, but one one thing that we learn in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and throughout it is that God begins to set things and people apart for himself. He declares that they are holy. For example, He says to the nation of Israel, you will be priests, royal priests, you'll be a holy nation before me. He declares that Israel is holy. What is he doing? 
He's saying that Israel is set apart for his purposes. One of his primary purposes is to bring forth the Messiah in time and history. And so part of their call is to preserve the messianic line, which is why, in my view, God deals with them so severely. A lot of folks don't understand judgment in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons is because you have to study to understand why God brings swift and severe judgment to his people. He has to. He's bringing forth Jesus Prophetically, he's declared this to happen, and so God has to instruct and construct the future so that Jesus can come forth when when he will. And so God deals with his people, and he gives them accountability. We call that the law or the Torah. He starts with 10 commandments, and it expands beyond 600 throughout Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we find that nobody is able to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. The accountability system that God gave to the nation of Israel, his holy people, they are unable to fulfill. They cannot live as a holy people. And so God, of course, then sends forth the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. God the Son comes. Jesus is born of a virgin. He lives a sinless life, should we say a holy life. He dies on the cross in our place He's raised from the dead three days later. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and we understand that he is coming back for those who name the name of Christ, those who confess that he is Lord and Savior. We understand this, but the Bible also tells us that when we give our lives to Jesus, when we call him Lord and Savior in our life, he declares us holy. In systematic theology, we call this positional holiness. We are made holy the past, one passage that we can read today is Hebrews 10.10. It says that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. If you name the name of Jesus, you are holy. Go ahead and just say it. Say, I am holy. I am holy. If you believe in Jesus. Amen. If you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you are holy. What does that mean? It means you're set apart for God. You're set apart in Christ But it doesn't stop there because we read about 75 to 100 admonitions in the New Testament to be holy as God is holy. Well, if you already are holy, then why would the New Testament writers say, be holy? Well, the reason they're saying that is because they're talking to us about our behavior. They're saying, because you are something doesn't mean that you're living like it. It'd be like my kids. I tell our kids, we are Dixons and Dixons do certain things. Just because they are Dixons doesn't mean they live in the principles of the Dixon household. And so the New Testament writers are saying you're in Christ, you are Christians, but you have to live in a way that is keeping with what Jesus declares over you and paid for you. And so we read things like Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. We know this passage really well. Paul writes, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, or because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I like how another translation says, it is your reasonable act of worship. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, Peter says something similar here. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance or outside of Christ, But like the Holy One, Jesus, who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior. Be holy in the way that you act. You already have it in your identity, 
but you need to live it in the way that you choose to follow Christ. And so this means that we wake up in the morning and we say, God, I am yours. Not only do I know that's true because you paid for me and I've yielded my life to you, but I want to follow you in all of my actions, my attitudes, and all of the things that I say. I want to follow you practically. We call this practical holiness. Hebrews chapter 12 actually tells us that God disciplines us so that we can share in his holiness. You go ahead and check it out for yourself. So holiness is something that we are in Christ, but it's something that we are called to walk in through the power of the Holy Spirit. You guys see where I'm going? I'm connecting some dots today. It's amazing. And so what we once could not do when we didn't believe in Christ, now when we read scriptures, we don't look and say, oh, I can't do that, and neither could anybody under the old covenant, but we are in the new covenant And those of us who've named Jesus have the Holy Spirit, and so now we can actually read Scripture and say, I can do that, not in my own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can be and live a holy life. Not in our own strength, but in His. And so this sort of clears up some confusion when we read about the issue of holiness. But as we go back to our text today, I think it's important for us to recognize something, that Paul is calling Timothy to Stay in this posture of holiness because when you do, it means that you can be useful to God. But listen, we are going to have to fight for holiness in an ungodly world. You just go ahead and say amen because it's true. We have to fight to live a Christian life, a holy life. And if you did not know that you're in a battle or a full-blown war for your soul, you are. I want you to know that today. We deal with all kinds of things, and so did they. Paul is talking to Timothy in a culture that was just riddled with every kind of evil imaginable. But we too have our versions of that today. We deal with things like relativism. We have a doctrine that flows through our culture that I believe even infects and affects Christians and churches. Relativism would say to you that there is no absolute truth. Who can know it? We're agnostic, we're atheists, Uh, you know, that's sort of this prevailing message in the culture that nobody can really know truth. And so you need to live your truth. Just be you, be whoever you want to be. Live your truth. That's a cultural doctrine that is influencing people all throughout society. What about materialism? We're talking about how possessions and wealth is more important than our spiritual values and our principles. And we're told to climb the ladder. You know, no matter what you have to do to climb the ladder, step on other people if you have to. Even if it's not directly said, it's implied. And you do you to climb the ladder of success and for you to get yours and get where you want to be. It's this implication in our society today. Or maybe it is secularism, where religion isn't real and it must be kept out of all aspects of society. In fact, it's almost taught that it is the burden of society, isn't it? I've had a number of people tell me that it is religion's fault for why we are where we are today. Uh, maybe there are all kinds of conflicts in the name of religion. We certainly don't want to deny real history and that there have been these things. But when it comes to faithful followers of Jesus, I think the same burden is attached to even people that are willing to give their lives for others. And we have what we call secularism today. Also naturalism. Only natural laws exist and therefore science is our savior Science is our savior, we're told. Science, what science though? 
Today, we're not even sure what science actually means anymore. I remember, just as a, I'm just going to throw out a little nugget for you today. When I was growing up and we were studying science, I was told that there were 35 different kinds of Tyrannosaurus rexes. That was science. Well, today there's 15. You know why? Because science now tells us that those were just different stages of development for the Tyrannosaurus rexes. So we now know there's not 37 and there's only 15. Friends, listen, science is the discovery of that which is true. All right, it is not the doctrine of truth, but that is what it's become. And if you just claim science over whatever it is that you're saying, apparently you are the authority on whatever those comments might be. We're not anti-science. We're thankful for true science because we believe that real science will actually lead to the discovery of what we know is true, and God's the creator over all of it. We're not asking people to lose their mind at the door. Use your mind. Renew your mind while you're doing it. Amen. We deal with critical theory, which breaks down society and people groups to help us discover the assumptions that keep us back, apparently, from understanding the way that the world really works. We're, we're living under this critique of all traditionalism and all religion, especially Christianity, for sure. And it's providing another way of salvation. It's providing another worldview. It's providing another way to live. And I think, personally, most people don't even understand what critical theory is. Some people go too far in thinking that it is the greatest evil that we are facing today. I don't, I don't believe that. When you pit it up against materialism, and naturalism and secularism and radical individualism and materialism. I'm not sure that it's the greatest threat that we have, but it is certainly one of them. We're living under all of these cultural ideologies that are affecting and influencing everything around us. How about sexual confusion? The view of God's design for marriage, sexuality, purity. Uh, From a biblical sexual ethic, from a Christian's point of view, it's called bigotry. If you believe in God's design, you're a bigot, you're hateful, you're insensitive, you lack compassion. Friends, I think we can have compassion for the struggle without suggesting that it's true or real or right. And so we teach this at our church, and we've been called everything you can, I have at least. And it's never a lack of compassion for the struggle, but it's to even suggest that the struggle is not fact. It's to suggest that you're a bigot when we know that we're not taking cues from what we want to be true. I'm just trying to faithfully read this and apply it the best way that I know how. Individualism or radical individualism, where we think our life has no bearing on anybody else. It's just, it's just about me and my needs, my wants, and, no, and it doesn't really matter. Other people, how other people are affected, it, it doesn't really matter. See, these things are infecting and affecting us all the time, all over the place. It's in every type of system, from what we're reading, from what we're watching, from the, the parts of society that we're engaged in, the jobs that we have, the education system and everything. And I'm not trying to scare you, but I am trying to prepare you. I think there's a difference between being scared and prepared. I think we need to understand the world that we're living in so that as we present Christ in the midst of it, that we're not, only, not only are we not ashamed, but we're knowledgeable enough to understand who we're talking to. Isn't that what missionaries do when they go to another land that's foreign to them? They study the culture and the language and they seek to understand it. And I think it's important for us to know the culture that we're living in, but also and secondarily know how we respond. I often agree with a lot of Christians in their assessment of what is wrong, but I I don't often agree with the way Christians address it. And this is why we have to understand both. 
what is wrong and how do we address it? The assessment is simply not enough. But I'm saying all this to say this. Our world is not necessarily Paul and Timothy's world, but we do need to understand it. I do think that our cultural ideologies are affecting us to the degree where it actually creeps into the church. Uh, materialism creeps into the church. Individualism creeps into the, all these things, and we need to be able to identify them so that we're really following Christ, the God of the Bible. But sometimes what happens when we talk about something like holiness, the thing that I have been able to identify or recognize, and maybe this won't sound right as, when I first say it, but bear with me for a moment, people will say things like, Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. That's what people will say. And you're wondering if I agree with that statement. I know you are. And I do. I agree that it's about relationship. But see, what that subtly implies is there are no rules. And people will say things like this. Christianity is not about standards. It's about grace. I don't know if that's a really good statement. Christianity or coming to Christ is about his grace. I can't earn it, I don't deserve it, so I'm not saved by my works, I'm not saved by, you know, what I do, I'm saved because I say yes to the person of Jesus, that he died and that he rose again, and I am saved. But friends, have we forgotten that there are standards? Of course there are standards. I think a statement like this misses the mark because we automatically are just washing over our indiscretions, our shortcomings, and our sins. God wrote this thing called Ten Commandments. He wanted us to be sure that there is a way for us to live our lives. There are things that are right and that are wrong. And yes, salvation, coming to Christ, is about grace. God loves us, but God does not necessarily love the way that we live all the time and the choices that we make. Just like a good father and mother does not agree with their kids and the decisions that they make all the time, that's why we are always aggressively negotiating with our children. We're fighting for them to walk in the, in the best possible situation for their lives, to fight for righteousness, for them to walk in holiness, to be set apart unto God. We have to fight for this. And that's what I believe Paul is telling Timothy. You gotta fight for this. Not fight other people, but in yourself. You're in a war in your soul, and you have to understand this. If you're not going to grab a hold of this and become intentional, you'll end up worldly. And when you're worldly, you're not effective. See, Christians that are not seeking to be set apart for God's purposes, as far as I can tell, are not going to be useful to God and what he desires. And I'm able to prove that to you from the text. So I want to give you some principles as we go back to our text today for living a holy life before God. Here's number one. Our holiness before God equals our usefulness to God. Now, before you reject that statement, Uh, Let me unpack it. Let's look at verse 20. In a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wooden earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified or made holy, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. What we're talking about here is, or the implication is that we want to be useful to God. And Paul's saying to Timothy, if you want to be useful, it's not random, it's not accidental. You don't stumble into it, you choose. You make a choice to walk with God. You make a choice to set your lives apart 
for God. In our culture, we tend to think if a person has a great intellect, or if they're strong, or if they're fashionable, or if they have great charisma, or if they're gifted, or all of these things, these are the people that we think, oh, you're going to be really useful to God. But the Bible knows nothing about that. The Bible knows nothing about that. When you look at scripture, the people that are used are the people that humble themselves, the people that are faithful, the people that say yes when others don't say yes. There are a lot of gifted, there are a lot of charismatic, there are a lot of incredible people, but God's looking for credible, not incredible. There's a big difference between the two. Look what the psalmist writes in Psalm 24 and verse three. He said, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? This is speaking about being intimate with God knowing him, having that close relationship with him. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Oh, he tells us, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul to falsehood and sworn deceitfully or worships idols. A person that has chosen that God is their lot in life. A person that says, I want God more than anything else. See, friends, I think we misunderstand sometimes this issue of holiness. And what we've been reading in the book of Mark is we see the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, and I think their temptation is often our temptation. Their temptation to be legalistic, their temptation to depart from the things, but they are not available to the purpose of God. See, we often think that if you don't watch this and you don't drink that, and if you don't say this and you don't hang out with them and you don't read that, that you're doing pretty good. You're living a holy life. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we would pursue righteousness with the righteous, that we would lay aside all of these other things so that we would be useful to God. So we can say no to all of this stuff, but if we're not saying yes to God, we're really not living what the scriptures say. And so what ends up happening is we say, I'm living a holy life based on what I'm not doing and what I'm not saying and who I'm not hanging around. And we think that that's enough. And if you live that kind of Christianity, the only thing that you have at that point is to compare yourself to other people and think, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. And this is the crux of cultural Christianity, is that we define our Christianity not by what we do for God, but we define it by what we're not doing and who we used, who, what we used to do. We're not doing those things anymore. And listen, that's not the kind of Christianity that the Bible talks about. It isn't just about restraining unrighteousness. It's about producing righteousness. It's about loving people. It's about serving. It's about giving. It's about sacrificing. This is Christianity. It costs us something. And so we get part of it right without realizing it's the other side that God is really after. When he says, useful to the master for every good work. Who are those people? They're people that not only say yes, but they're people that follow through. They're people that keep saying yes. They don't stumble into it. They're after God with all of their heart. They say, in the morning, Lord, I'm yours. I want to be set apart for you. Whatever you want, I want. Whatever you say, I want to do. Give me the grace to obey you today. Give me the grace to step outside of myself and to ignore those things and to not be taken away by the temptations and the lures and the lusts of this world. But Lord, give me the courage to lay hold of what you want. Give me the courage to talk to the people you want and to give away my life for those that you've called me to sacrificially serve just like you did because that's what you did. You gave yourself to people that didn't deserve it. 
You gave yourself to people that could never earn it. You gave yourself to a world that didn't deserve you. And now you say to me, as you send me back into the world, I want you to spend your life on people that aren't necessarily deserving it, haven't earned it, and aren't asking for it. But that's what I want you to do. Follow me. And you're not going to do that if you're not already putting yourself into the column where you're holy, you're set apart unto God. And this is why I would say to you today, our holiness before God equals our usefulness to God. Why would I say that? Think about a person that started out serving the Lord. Think about a person that loved God with all their heart, but they had this secret. They had these things that they were doing when nobody was looking. They didn't want anybody to know about it. They had this this closet stuff, or maybe the way their home life was was completely different than their public life. Maybe their secret life and their home life and the things they don't want anybody to know. I'm not shaming anybody today, but just hear me out. And those things, you know, are going on, and the Bible's clear. Eventually, they will manifest and come to the light. Friends, listen. I've just been at this long enough, not longer than everyone, but long enough to see it come to pass. And we start to sort of settle down and think that these things that are going on over here are not going to affect my, my life. We compartmentalize. No, you have one life. And so our anger eventually will find its way. Our lust, our pride, our jealousy, our envy, it will find its way out and leak into relationships and, and eventually hinder our fruitfulness. It, it will happen. And, and it, it, I mean, churches and pastors are the easy targets for me to talk about just for a moment is to say, I've had plenty of friends who were pastors and they had these things that they didn't deal with and then they fell, bam. And all of a sudden they were useful to God in one in one season, and now they're not even, I mean, nobody's listening to anything that they have to say anymore. They've lost it all. Well, why? Because their lives weren't holy. Their lives weren't set apart unto God. They weren't ridding themselves of unrighteousness and submitting themselves to the usefulness of God for his glory. I've just, I've just seen it. Nobody's the exception. And Paul is telling Timothy that very thing. If you've ever been an employer, I've had businesses and, and obviously oversee the church, I've hired lots of people. I'm not looking for the most gifted. I just want you to know, I've learned a couple lessons along the way. I'm looking for people that'll show up. Right, I mean, if you meet somebody and you're like, you got some project that you wanna do and you're like, oh, this person, I mean, they're so articulate, they're so gifted, I bet you they're really skilled, look at their resume, it's incredible. Nine o'clock Monday morning comes and they don't show, uh, that resume starts to look less and less appealing. Tuesday comes and they still ain't here. Wednesday they show up. You better be able to do the work of five men and 16 women. I'm telling you. It's like they, you know, here they are. And are you going to hire that person again? No. No, God's not any different. It's, It's not about his love for us. It's that he wants to use us. And if we want to be used by God and not just loved by him, then we have to be people that are saying, I've, I want to live a holy life useful to the master for for every good work. The second principle is this. The people who flee are the people who are free. You know it's going to rhyme. You're welcome. Paul says this in verse 22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee the youthful lusts. I remember a couple houses ago, our family lived in this area called Maze Pond. It's in Bothell, up north, you know, like, it might as well be Canada from here. Anyways, we used to live, a couple houses ago, we bought a house, had a creek in the backyard, 
And you always buy a house and you think the creek is a cool thing. You're like, this is so great. We have a creek and it's, uh, it has a sense of serenity. I just, I just love it. But what you didn't realize is the water table in your backyard rises to the point where you literally have mush in your backyard. You wanted a, a grass lawn, forget about it. And so um, we quickly realized that the deck was rotted and the fence was rotted. And so I tore out the deck, we tore out the deck, and then we were tearing out the fence posts. You may not remember this, but you, you will, you'll remember this. And so I'm, I'm on my last, uh, I'm talking to my wife, by the way, in case you're wondering, who is he pointing at? <laughs> it's not some random citizen. I do know her. All right. <clears throat> I'm digging up the last fence post, and, and uh, this person... I mean, you know how they'll put them in concrete. You understand, right? I mean, that's what they'll do. People will put a fence post in concrete. And this person, they thought, I'm going to do it right. I pity the fool that's going to take this out. So we're, <laughs> sort of sounds like me. But anyhow, I'm, I'm digging this fence post out of the ground. And as I dig, I shoved, uh, the, I shoved the shovel right into the ground. And I heard something. And next thing I know, these massive demon bees fly up out of the ground and they were like dark, and I've never seen, I mean, they might as well have been bats. I'm kind of exaggerating, but you know, first of all, I didn't know that was a thing, okay? I didn't know bees lived in the ground. What other demons are in the ground? I mean, I'm just not sure what all is in the ground anymore, okay? I thought they lived in these hanging things and trees and all, you know, we see that, we avoid them, but I'm digging in the ground, people, and there are bees coming up out of the ground that might as well be bats, And so I want to tell you what Pastor Ben did. I did not sit and negotiate with those bees. I didn't try to catch one as an illustration later for my kids about the birds and the bees, like this big demon bee. I mean, I didn't stop to figure that out. I ran for my life. You should have seen it. You would have been proud of me. I mean, I tore up that hill. And no bee got me that day. Not one. Not one bee stung me or whatever those things were. I'll tell you what. I know what it means to flee. I know what it means to run. Okay? If I would have stayed, I would have been stung. And this is what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's saying, flee. You need to run. Flee these youthful lusts. And he's talking to an adult. He's not talking to a kid. Timothy's not a kid. He's the bishop over the church at Ephesus. And he's telling Timothy, flee from youthful lusts. Well, you might be asking, what are youthful lusts? What about addictions, secret sins, intoxication with self, an overindulgence, you know, in one's self, sexual sin, disobedience, rebellion, pride, arrogance, being flimsy. I'm just throwing some things out here. Unreliable, being lazy, late to everything, lack of stewardship, lack of appreciation, on and on. These are temptations for all of us, adults and young people alike. They're youthful lusts. And what he's saying is if you're maturing in Christ, you have to move beyond this stuff because it will literally take over your mind and your heart. It it will kill you. It will separate you from God if you give yourself to these attitudes and these actions. You are called to live a holy life in dignity and respect and honor and to look like Jesus. And you've got to rid yourself of these things and don't negotiate with them. Flee, run from this stuff. It's not for you. It's not who you are anymore. And I think this is an important thing for us to sit and sort of dwell on for a second because we tend to think, you know, that deliverance can often just be sort of a one prayer away. And listen, I pray for people all the time. In fact, last service, I prayed for a woman um, well into her 60s, and she confessed to me right here that she smoked cigarettes. And she said, I've never told anybody. 
And we prayed that God would break the power of that. Amen? Amen. And I prayed for somebody else, very similar thing. This is today. This isn't last year. This is today. And I was so proud. You know, the thing I tell people is I just say, thank you for trusting me with that. I say, thank you for trusting me with that. Because it takes a lot of courage to confess this kind of stuff. But every time we do, we get a little bit more free. But it's not just the prayer that we pray at the altar or the prayer of confession. It starts there, but it has to move into making real choices. Because 80% of deliverance is discipleship. 20% is the prayer where we take authority over the enemy and we declare his healing and his freedom. That's 20%. We can get free really easy, but staying free is discipleship. It's real decisions to follow a real God. And so Paul is telling Timothy here to flee, to run from this stuff. And I would say to you today, it's not just from the youthful desires, but it's also from the youthful attitudes. It's the youthful preoccupation with other things. Once again, holiness has been sometimes taught in some churches that it's really about what you don't do. And make sure that, you know, I had some people confess to me last night that they grew up in churches where it was like, don't dance and don't listen to this and like all that kind of stuff. And it's really plagued them legalistic environments that were not focused on being passionate for Jesus Christ, loving Jesus Christ, going after Jesus Christ, living a life of prayer, living a life of pursuit and sacrificial giving toward people that are in this world that need Jesus. It's not really consumed with God. It's consumed and preoccupied with denying all of these other things. Friends, the reason that we would deny self is that we would have more room for God. That's the purpose of it. God doesn't just draw a line and say, let's just see who's a good Christian. It's like, well, what day is it today? Well, Thursday I'm over here, and Friday I'm a little bit over here, and sometimes I'm in between. And I mean, this is the point of the standards of God is not to sort of proof text which one of us is a decent Christian. It's God saying as a good father, I have called you to live a certain way so that you are available to the things that I've designed for you to do. It's to be useful to God for every good work. Are you available? In fact, the greatest ability we probably have is our availability. It's not some measure of giftedness that we have over another person. You can have all kinds of giftedness and never touch any of your destiny, never do anything for God that he wants you to do. And that is not what we want. This is not what, what we want. I think a youthful attitude is that attitude that we're exceptions. So it's not just the desires, but think about this. It's, um, I'm not talking about my young people, but I'm just saying that sometimes, you know, when I'm trying to figure out a way to say this in my head. It works, but I don't know if it's going to work when it comes out of my mouth. You know, bottleneck, bottleneck. Anyways, all right. Sometimes when God wants to get our attention and maybe he wants to download what he's called us to and speak to us, this is what I want you to partner with me in, we're not available to what he's saying. We're preoccupied with other things. That's why what we're talking about, holiness, makes us available. It's kind of like when a young person, I mean, I don't understand video games, so I can say all this with smiles on my faces because I just hate video games, but it's like trying to get a young person to pry themselves away from the game. It's like, hey, it's time for dinner, and, and they're just one hour into this thing, and they've become one with the game. The game and them have become one, fully attached. In fact, they think they are the game. Hey, it's time for dinner. Would you please separate yourself from said game where you're vanquishing your foes 
and rising as the champion. And would you put that aside for a moment and rise to the dinner table and grace us with your holy presence? Would you do that? Could you please do that today? And for some reason, they do not hear you. And so you try it again and again and again. You're laughing because you understand. Either you're doing it or you're on the other end of it. Either way, it's funny. We want to be with you for dinner and ask you about your day and have a time of fellowship, but you are so focused on the game and preoccupied with the game that the thing that is meaningful is not happening. If God has to spend all of his time getting our attention, how much are we missing that he's calling us to give ourselves to? If you're holy, you're saying this, I'm not better than anybody, but I'm setting my life apart so that when God speaks, I'm available. That's what we're saying. He doesn't have to spend hours and days and months to get our attention because we're already available to God. When we flee youthful lust, it's the youthful attitude that says, this isn't that bad. Some things that we involve ourselves in in life are not innately sinful. They're neutral. But when we do them at an excess level, they become an idol in our life because they take the place of God. So whatever that might be, it could be anything, but when it takes the place of God, we live in a culture of excess and indulgence. You can have your cakes, your cakes, your cupcakes, and eat them too. You can have them all. You can have 20 hobbies, sure. You can watch hours of television, why not? And you're probably gonna write that book that God called you to. You're probably gonna serve those people that he's put on your heart. You're probably gonna make those phone calls to care for people in your life. Sure, it'll probably happen. No, it won't. It will not happen because we don't have space. We're not giving him anything. Friends, you understand what I'm saying? This isn't about shame. It's that we've been called to something that is great and we allow ourselves to be given to total insignificance. And the Lord's saying, I want you to live a holy life. And if you set yourself apart, there's no telling what you might do for God. Any one of us, we hear the voice of God. Pastor Ben, I wanna hear the voice of God. You gotta make room you got to make room. You can't have it all and wonder why you don't hear God. Friends, I'm telling you, set your lives apart. He's talking to an adult. He's talking to a pastor. You know what that means? That means every person needs to hear what we're talking about today. Every person. We pursue righteousness with the righteous. He says not only to flee youthful lust, but to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We pursue Jesus with those who pursue Jesus. I want to reach people that don't know Jesus, but I do not allow voices into my life that are not going to give me biblical and godly counsel. I have plenty of friends that are non-Christians. I, I love everyone, but I am not going to allow voices. And that means what I watch, what I read, what I listen to, my intake, I don't listen to any of it. I mean, seriously, social media right now is shaping the way people think. Absolutely. 100%. One of the reasons why Christians are so angry is because of social media. One of the reasons. And it just literally is, is the fire. It's the fuel. And let me just convict you a little bit here, okay? 
We've got to read the Bible. We've got to study to show ourselves approved. And these sound bites on social media are killing people because they are literally these clips that are fueling something on the inside of us. And I would tell you, when you begin to detox from media, something special happens in your life. Your heart starts to get fresh and sensitive all of a sudden, and the word of God just starts to plant itself. This is what Paul says in verse 15. I just got a few more minutes, so bear with me. That's all all you need to give me, please. Paul says this, verse 15, study to show yourself approved, a workman unto God who can accurately, who's unashamed and can accurately handle the word of truth. Accurately handling the Bible means this, it's, it's, it's a term, it's a Greek term that's borrowed from the agricultural world. It's when people would have farms and they would till the soil and a plowman would get, uh, get his hands on the plow and they would have to literally cut straight lines because that's what it means to accurately handle the word of truth. It means to cut a straight line. And it's borrowed from the plowman who would have to plow. They go back and forth and cut a straight line as they plowed so that all of the soil was tilled and it could receive the seed. And you don't miss any of it. So if you go jagged, if you go like this or you go like that, you're going to have some tilled soil and you're going to have some hard soil. Some soil can't receive the seed and it won't bear fruit. And so this word accurately handle the Bible means you have to study this so that you literally cut a line straight and it tills up the soil of your heart so the word can be implanted, received, and obeyed. And what people do is they go like this with the Bible. They just zigzag it. You you following me so far here? All right. And if we do that with this word and we don't study to show ourselves approved, we, us, we have to study this word, give ourselves to it. And we're going to find ourselves in a very confusing place. And what we will do is give over to the other voices that do not deserve those places in our lives. We have to detox, even from some voices that we think are saying the right things. I often agree with people in the culture that we're living in about the assessment. I seldom agree with the methodology or the way we address it. And it's become unreasonable. We're literally, we're living in a time where I open up the Bible regularly and try to talk to people out of the scriptures and they go, yeah, but. We've got to stop saying, yeah, but. Yeah, but we've got to dig deep into the word. And if you're not doing that, friends, I'm not guilting you into that. That doesn't work. But I'm trying to compel you. This word has the answers. It does. But they're waiting for us. They're waiting for us. We cannot outsource our spirituality to someone else. We can't. We can't outsource it on whatever media platform. We can't. It's one thing to supplement. It's another thing to substitute. And that is what happens today in our world. And it is fueling the flesh rather than the spirit. Let me prove it to you. I'm going to close by saying this. Because I have to. It's late. You got to pick up these little humans. Otherwise, they're going to be bouncing all over the walls, which some of you would be fine with. I mean... Let them, let them hang out there. But then I'd have to buy gift cards for a lot of teachers. <laughs> I was reading in Exodus chapter 3, we're talking about holiness, and there's this encounter, check this out, there's this encounter that Moses has. He's been in the, the region of Midian for 40 years. He ran from Egypt because he murdered someone. He's 80 years old. He's a shepherd now out in this strange land. And for his father-in-law, he's a shepherd. 
and he's walking out there in the desert and he sees a bush that is on fire, but it's not burning up. You guys know the story, of course. And he says, I'm gonna turn aside to see this wonderful sight. And when he does it, as he approaches this flame, the voice of God speaks to him and says what? Take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. I just want you to let that burn into your mind for a minute. Joshua chapter five. This is the successor of Moses. He's taking the people of Israel into the promised land. They're about to face Jericho. He has a theophany or Christophany, a pre-incarnate Christ is revealed to him in the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord speaks to him and says, take off your shoes or your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. Take off your sandals. I thought about that. I thought, man, that's a strange thing. We're so removed from that culture. It's not something that we would think of. Why would he say, take off your sandals? Why would, why would he say that? And I started to study and think through it and pray about it. And I realized that it's a powerful metaphor of being consecrated in a special, in a holy moment for what is about to unfold. Your sandals is about where you've walked. It's about you walking over all of the different land and the places that you've been and you pick up all the different pollutants on on the bottom of your sandals, and you're literally standing with all of that, all of your past, all of where you've been, all of what you were, and now you're approaching God in this season where God is about to do something, and he's looking for people that will yield to his will, not just respond to everything, but he's looking for people that will hear his voice. And so these men approach the presence of God, and this is what God says, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Where you're about to go and what I'm about to say to you, where you were and who you were cannot come. Your opinions and your thoughts, they cannot come. Fast forward, John chapter 13. Jesus, we're talking about the last hours of his life. He makes a decision. He's, he's, he comes to the disciples as they're having the last supper and he gets on his knees and what does he do? He washes the disciples' feet. I mean, this is really powerful. Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he's not just being nice. He's not just trying to do a nice deed. There's, there's an, an anointing that's about to come on them to continue the mission and the ministry of Christ. And he, he washes their feet. I want to say something to you today. God, I believe in our generation, is looking for people in a holy moment that will take off and lay aside the things of the past and they will say yes to him now, and he will use them right here and right now. God is looking for people that'll deny the past and all of the things that are attached to it and say, I will serve God for, the for his purposes in my generation. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for people that aren't incredible. He's looking for credible. People that will say yes, people that will lay aside other things. I started thinking about it. You knew I was gonna do this. These are, these are Adidas, Adidas, come on now. You won't catch me on preachers and sneakers, I'll tell you that much. If you know what that is, you'll laugh. If not, it's not funny. Um, you know, I clean my shoes. These are like two and a half years old. I clean my shoes. Uh, but no matter how rigorous I clean them, don't tell me magic eraser, don't, don't, do, don't do that. But no matter how rigorous I clean them, they're still not new. I, st I still see there's a little shade there. You know, you might think those are pretty clean. You got to be up close. I try to clean them myself, you know, but they're not new. 
And I thought about, man, that's, that's what I think people try to do. I'll just take both of them off because it's awkward just to have one shoe on. That's what I think people try to do. I think we try to clean ourselves up. We try to get, get a little bit better. We try, he's saying, I want you to lay aside some stuff. And if you'll lay aside some stuff about who you were and where you were, if you'll do that, watch what I will do through your life. Watch. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. But watch what I will do through your life. And this is the desire that we have. I want to be useful to God. If you want to be useful to God, friends, I'm telling you, it literally is about submission. It's about surrender. But this is also what it's about. It's about hearing the voice of God. Moses heard the voice of God. Joshua heard the voice of God. And Jesus' disciples heard the voice of their Savior. I am wondering if we are listening to the voice of God because he has an answer for what we're facing in our world. But I'm telling you, most people are focused on what other people are saying we ought to do. But if we put aside some of these things, God will speak to your heart and he will give you one thing to lay hold of or maybe two things to lay hold of and you will enter into this place of meeting Jesus one day on that day and he will say to you, good and faithful servant. And that's what we want. We wanna be faithful to what Jesus says to us about our life. So last service, I prayed for some people to get rid of some cigarettes and to get rid of some sin. And to get rid of some excess, I prayed for some people, some humble and some hungry people who said, I don't want to be who I was. I don't want to do what I did. I don't want to be angry anymore, but I want to hear the voice of God. And if we want to hear the voice of God, he'll speak to us. We don't have to be like anybody else. We're looking at Jesus. But he calls us to a holy life. Those that are willing to set themselves apart will be used of God. Not because he loves them more, but because we say yes. It's not about legalism. It's about usefulness. It's not about worthiness. It's about usefulness. So we say yes to Jesus. And would you stand today with me as I close? As I pray, and, and, and I would ask you just, if, just for a moment, if you'd bow your heads and if you want to close your eyes, but if you just, in the presence of the Lord, if you're here today and, and, and you're online, you're watching, and you have things that are holding you back, whether they're utterly sinful or they're just hindering you, and you know that you, you need to let go of those so that you can lay hold of more of God, what Jesus is doing, you know that you're called to a holy life, and I'm not saying you don't love God, I'm not saying that you don't care about what he wants. I'm, I'm just saying, if there's a recognition in you today that you are being hindered, uh, that you're latched onto some stuff that is just obstructing your view of God or your ability to move forward with what he wants, I, I just want you, and during this prayer time, I'm asking for you to surrender your heart to the Lord in, in that area specifically. Lay it aside. Lay it aside. It cannot go where he wants you to go. It can't come with you. If it's an attitude, if it's an action, it cannot come with you where you're going. It can't. And so I'm asking you to lay it aside. Tell him that. When people come up to me at the end of the service, one of the things I ask them to do is pray first. My prayer is not more powerful than a prayer of surrender. It is not more powerful than a prayer of surrender from a humble and hungry heart. It's not. But we have to pray, pray those prayers so I'm going to pray, and I'm asking you to do that if that's you. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus today. 
I thank you for your church. We are your people. And Lord, we desire to live a holy life set apart, consecrated for you, not just from sin, not just afraid of people and not trying to defile ourselves, but Lord, we're set apart for you and we want to hear what you're saying. I pray for an anointing to come today to hear. Give us ears to hear. In fact, I prophesy over you today, God is giving ears to hear his voice. Lord, what are you saying? What are you asking of me? What are you calling me into in terms of surrender? What does it look like? And we yield to you in that today. We yield to you in that today. Father, I pray you'd bless your people. I pray you'd strengthen us. I pray you would challenge us and sharpen us today as we go so that we could look more like Jesus and do all that you ask and obey you. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church. Church.